Hey, welcome to night school. A lot going on I won't elaborate on. It's not always a diary. This isn't always a diary. It's tempting. It's always tempting to, to make a, an audio diary. An audio diary. I just read a little passage in the, the Bible, the Beeble. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because... You know, people operate from this point of view that there's a correct way to interpret these things. And I'm not saying there isn't. You know, obviously there are scholars who have done a lot of work trying to understand what these things mean. But there's also a lot of value to having your own interpretation. People say that about art. Art's whatever you think it is. Whatever the meaning behind art is, it's whatever you as the observer think, you know. But I think that applies to many things. It's, it's almost one of those things you don't want to say out loud. Out loud. You almost don't want to say it out loud. It's almost better not to acknowledge that, but it is true. And uh, I read the, I'm going to read this little passage here that I just read. Um, but before I do... Just with that idea of like interpretations and, and having your own objective analysis of something without somebody else telling you what it means or what to think. You know, I, I had that experience when my mom passed where I, I found her copy of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which I had actually bought for her some years earlier. You know, she would always, my mom would make a very short Christmas list. She wanted like two things. Every year she wanted kitchen towels and maybe a book or a CD, just very small things. And I always enjoyed getting that for her. Like I always enjoyed like that my mom liked and wanted something because she was always giving to other people. I really enjoyed that I could give her something, even something simple. Like one year I remember she wanted a, a Johnny Lang CD. I think he's he's a blues musician. I, I think I know. I only know who he is because he's in the Blues Brothers 2000, which I saw in the the, the theater. He's a blonde guy. I believe he's a blues musician. But anyway, one year she wanted the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and I got it for her. And then when she died, I was going through her books and her things, and I found that, and I was like, it's almost like I bought this for myself now, because now it's mine. It's not hers anymore. And so I immediately started reading it when she died. I read it probably in the span of a week or so, I think. But her edition, my edition of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, each before each section or chapter, it would have an editor's analysis telling you what it means. And I skipped that every time, and I just read the actual content, which of course is translated so it's already been interpreted a little bit. But I skipped these summary analysis sections that preceded each chapter because I wanted just to take it in as it is. I didn't need the context, especially being experiencing a death, reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead, immediately following a death. I wanted to take it in just as it is. I didn't want to have my view colored by the editor's summaries or the editor's interpretation, even if it's scholarly, even if it's quote-unquote right. I just didn't want that. And so what I did is, is at the end, 
once I finished the actual content, I went back and I read each summary in a row. So I read those afterward, almost like a, um, what's it called? Uh, like a postscript or something. Like a postscript or something. And that's kind of my approach to the Bible or, or really any scripture or anything. I like to look at, at it as objectively as possible without somebody else telling me what it means or what to think. And if I need help, well, it's nice to know that somebody else's interpretation or summary is there. But I at least want to give it a shot on my own. And I've talked to the Bible about... I've, 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 I've talked to the Bible. I, I have talked to the Bible. No, I've talked to other people about the Bible. And I know some people... Like, I had a friend who was reading it for the first time and was... I think he might have had a, another book that offered interpretations or analysis, or he had an edition of it. He had, he had an edition of the Bible that offered kind of, you know, an outside analysis of what it was communicating. And I think that's a cool idea and everything, but that's not for me. Because my approach is even if I'm wrong, or even if I'm missing something, who knows what I'll get out of it if I try to look at it on my own. And I took that approach too when I was in college. I took a couple philosophy classes. One was just a basically philosophy 101. They had us read these very short books that basically, they, they were basically just an intro to all of the major philosophers. And I didn't care about like getting it right. I wanted just to take it in on my own. And who knows what I thought at that time? Who knows how I interpreted these things? And I remember in the philosophy 101 type class, the professor really liked what I said. He was a nice guy and he really enjoyed my papers and stuff. Like he told me like, you should, you should really consider pursuing this. But I also took an art philosophy class and, you know, it was a good class. Like I met a longtime girlfriend in that class. I, it was good for me to take it and it was totally different from the other classes I took in college but I took that same approach where I was like, this is how I'm reading it. And being an artist, I felt like I was in a position to interpret that stuff as I want, as, as I see it. But I got a lot of pushback from the other students. Like the professor was a woman who I really liked. Her name was Elizabeth. I really liked the professor. Like she was really open to, to my approach. And we would have these discussions in class in what we called seminar where a smaller group of our class would meet with a professor round, you know, round robin, round table, like we would all be in a big circle. And I, I noticed that I was getting a lot of pushback from other people in the class, men, because that's how it is. You know, it, it goes into what, I've, what I always say on here these days about mansplaining, where I believe women when they say that men, quote unquote, mansplain to them, but what they're not aware of or they're leaving out because it helps build a, a victim narrative is that men do that to each other just as much, if not more. So if you have a problem with mansplaining, you just have a problem with the way men talk to everybody. Men talk that way to children. Mansplaining to children. <laughs> Never heard anybody talk about that one. The way, the way that People talk to children. Although, honestly, when I was a kid, I would rate, I would way rather have somebody quote unquote mansplain to me than talk to me like a baby or a child or 
read a, a storybook to me in that slow, you know, feminine teacher voice. I would rather be patronized or talked down to than that. But anyway, uh, I, I remember in that art philosophy class, I didn't really want to share my views or interpretations, but participation was required. So I would sometimes comment. And I don't like art philosophy on the whole. Like as an artist, obviously I have a creative philosophy. Sometimes I've, I'll talk about it on here. But I don't enjoy reading these renowned art philosophers, whoever they even are, like whatever they even are considered. You know, we read people like, I think it was like Greenberg, Danto. I'm not even sure who these guys are. I ended up getting, whoever wrote about kitsch, I don't remember which one of those guys wrote about kitsch. But we, we read a, uh, an essay or something about kitsch. And I really latched onto that because I felt like it was something I could talk about. And I remember like, but, but then like we moved on to other stuff that I was really uninterested in. And so I continued to riff on the kitsch topic, what we call riff, doing a little riffing on the kitsch topic. And I remember my professor who, like I said, liked me and liked my approach, but she was like, oh, so you're still talking about kitsch? Oh, you're still talking about kitsch, huh? And I'm like, there's way more to talk about than that, than these abstract ideas. Like, kitsch is something that I feel like I can sink my teeth into a little more. But I found that there were these other, there was specifically this one guy. And he kind of, I don't, I don't know his story. Like, I might have, if I, if I had met him outside of class, I might have really liked him. But he kind of presented himself as this, like, airheaded eccentric. But he was obviously really smart. I mean, he's a good example of a guy who I felt like he was purposely acting more dense than he actually was. Because, you know, people do that. That's, a, that's, that's something that people do to manipulate is they act dumber than they are. But we'd have these discussions, and then he would, he would launch into this stuff. Like, he was obviously very interested in philosophy. He was obviously very interested in art philosophy. But I noticed that, like, anytime I would say something, and I was really just trying to get my participation points, he'd be like, no, that's not what it means, blah, blah, blah. The, the true interpretation is this. He would betray his attempts to seem more dense than he was in those moments by mansplaining to me. I was mansplained to. But my whole approach is what I'm talking about here, which is like, I just wanted to take this stuff in. I didn't want any other points of reference or context. I just wanted to take the text as it came and give my thoughts on it. I, di I didn't actually care what the author was referring to because I'm not interested in that. I'm, I'm not interested in that. I'm really not. I'm not interested in people who, like, as an artist, obviously I have a creative philosophy. I don't like to call it that, but obviously I do. But I have zero interest in art philosophers, like somebody who makes that their platform. I'm glad they did that so that I don't have to. I'm glad they did that so that my friends don't have to. I'm glad I don't have to say, oh, my friend, he's an art philosopher. It's what I say about opinions. Sometimes I'm glad when somebody else has an opinion because it means I don't have to have it. But uh, I'm going to read this little Bible segment. Not in context. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, 
and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? His being capital, God. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? I'm going to say that again. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. And, you know, the thing about uh, the potter, you know, having a right over the clay that he's using, that's what it says. Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? You know, it's, it, it, I kind of take that as like God creates destruction to give meaning to mercy and vice versa for that matter. You know, it goes back to, you know, this sort of juvenile, rudimentary, atheist view. People who have lost their faith often say this, which is like, how could a God allow starving children? How could a God allow this tragedy to befall me? How could this happen, you know? And that causes people to lose faith or question the idea. Like, how could this bad thing exist? Or even if you want to get away from the destructive, like what it says about clay the potter using the same clay to make something for honorable use and common use. It doesn't even have to be good and bad. It's just talking about things having different qualities or different uses and one seeming desirable and one seeming undesirable. But it's the undesirable that makes the desirable desirable. And it's the desirable that makes the undesirable undesirable. And Buddhism deals with this as well. You know, this is obviously something that many different people in different places have come to understand. There's a balance to it. There's a relationship there. Where the, the opposite reinforces its opposite and gives it its meaning. You can't have mercy without destruction. You can't have positivity without negativity. Because without negativity, what is positivity? And so these things have a symbiotic relationship where they define each other. Just an interesting idea. You know, you, you can't have joy without its opposite. You need the opposite to define it.
Like you could even just look at it as a story, a movie where there's a hero and a villain. And what's what's a story? Like what is a movie without a villain? Well, you can't have a hero if there's no villain or struggle at the very least. It doesn't have to be a guy. The villain doesn't have to be a man. It could be nature or something. You know, these stories about guys going out and trying to survive in nature. And a lot of people do see nature as a villain. So it doesn't have to be a man. It doesn't have to be a person. But in those stories, what makes somebody a protagonist is that they're, if there's not an antagonist, there's some kind of antagonism. Because you can see nature is an antagonist. It's also a protagonist because it, what are we without nature? We're not here. We are nature too. We're antagonists too. But it's the antagonism that defines the protagonist. And I, I like that quote though about like basically why should the potter who has the right to his clay not make something for honorable use and common use? You could say, why, why are you doing that? Why are you using the clay to make something ordinary and dull when you could use it to make something sacred? Well, the potter has a right to his clay. The potter, in this case, being God. Nothing else to say about that. I mean, I, I, that seems pretty straightforward. I don't think my interpretation is that far out there. But I do find with this subject, like sometimes I'll talk to people who I like and respect and love, but they they kind of want to get into what the scholarly interpretation is, like what the research says about why the Bible says what it says. When I just like to take it in, I just like to go with it. But I'm going to continue on here. And uh, I was reading something. This is just completely shifting topic. But I was talking to a guy... He's a Mormon uh, from Utah, and, and I've known him for, I've been in communication with him for probably like 18 years, more or less, definitely 15. Not, not a friend of mine, but a guy who I have mutual interest with, and we communicate, we often debate. I really respect him, though. He's, he's got a very linear way of thinking, but he makes good arguments, and I do respect him. But, you know, we were talking about our interest in the mafia, for example, because that's how I know him. And we're talking about, like, what got us interested in this. And along with, you know, many other things, one thing I was saying was there's something in men. Like, being somebody who's been very deeply involved with that subject for the better part of 20 years since I was 18... It's over the interest in it is overwhelmingly male. Like any kind of discussion board, any kind of forum, most of the authors, most of the researchers are male. Because there's something in the mafia where like even if you don't think the mafia is cool, even if you think it is it is evil or you know, a blight on society there's still something about it that speaks to you as a man. And I was saying that, and this guy from Utah, Mormon guy from Utah, he was saying, you know, sociologists have shown that boys 
natural. Well, because because I was mentioning how women just aren't attracted to the subject. Like I've had girlfriends in the past who kind of indulge my almost autistic level of interest in the mafia, but they're not. They don't really care. They're just being nice, and it doesn't engage them. But it speaks to men for some reason, like other macho subjects do, like other masculine subjects do. But there's something about the mafia that really speaks to men. And, and this guy that I was talking to, he was saying how, you know, sociologists have shown that boys kind of naturally organize themselves and establish a pecking order, like even in school, even in groups of friends. And how that kind of reflects what you see in the mafia, where it's far more organized. It's a fraternal secret society. It's very formal and rigid in that way. But it's also kind of a... It has roots in what men do naturally. And I've thought about this many times over the years, because when I was growing up, I had a close group of friends, guys, from the time I was a little kid. I, I still wonder, like, how I was able to have friends. You know, I feel very fortunate that I did. Not that I was that popular or anything, but I always had a group of friends. And my best friend growing up was the de facto leader. And he was my best friend and, and, and my peer. God, there's a call. One sec. Okay, we're back. A split second for you was 10 seconds for me. I still have that landline set up and it's it, it honestly it's weird this is going to be just unrelated because I got distracted but when that landline rings it's like I feel it in my bones because it's almost always a robocall that was actually about something I needed but uh I feel it in my bones like I feel this dis-ease not disease but dis-unease I think unease is the word I'm looking for I feel this unease when the landline rings. And I picked up on that in meditation, which I'm, I'm still kind of out of practice on, but uh, kind of fallen out of regular meditation the last month or so. But I learned that in meditation, like what sounds disturb me? Like children playing, you know, out, outdoor noise, batty barking. It's, it's distracting, but it's not disturbing. Like natural sounds, like even if it's loud, a dog barking, a kid playing right outside my house, even if it's distracting during meditation, it doesn't disturb me. The most disturbing noise in meditation is if my phone's nearby and I get messages. That vibration. Because like the whole idea behind phones vibrating which we just take for granted now that that's the noises phones make. But the whole idea behind that vibration is that it's supposed to be subtle. But when my phone vibrates when I'm meditating, like the landline ringing, I feel that in my bones. I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's, it's like these are alien t to us. Because it's not even like the fact that it, it, it doesn't give me anxiety in the sense of like, who's texting me? Who's calling? Maybe a little bit of that, but it's, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't cause me anxiety based on like, 
why my phone is vibrating. It's just the actual sound of it. But anyway, back to the topic. I don't, I don't know exactly what, what I was saying, but boys, or, oh yeah, growing up, like having a group of friends and how my best friend growing up was always the de facto leader. I, and it's hard to say exactly what it was. Like he had a certain charisma, but you wouldn't say he, he wasn't the most outgoing, charismatic person you ever met. There was just something about him that people gravitated toward and they deferred to him. And I was certainly not a follower. He was a peer of mine. And like over the years, like he was, you know, barring like a couple years here and there, like a year here and there, like where we, we would have like a problem or, you know, when, when you're close friends with somebody of, you kind of fall in and out. But through almost my entire childhood through high school, we were always, we were two consistent parts of our group of friends and other people kind of came and went. We had some friends who were kind of hanger on, you know, they, they would kind of hang around and they would come and go. And even though a lot of those guys I consider like really solid individuals in their own right, they were a little more followers. Like they, they followed my friend more. I was willing to let him be the leader because I'm not a leader. I've known that about myself my entire life. I am not a leader. I might pride myself on my independence and my individuality, but I'm not suited to lead people. And people don't treat me that way. Because the thing about a natural leader is they're going to be a leader whether they choose that or not. And usually they don't. And people have never treated me like a leader. They've treated me like an individual, thankfully. I greatly appreciate that. But I've never been treated by, by I've never been treated like a leader. And I've had a, a number of jobs. I've never applied for a promotion, but I've been given promotions. And, and I've been asked to step up and take like a management role. And I'm not saying that to brag because I really don't have any pride in it. You know, in not being a leader and knowing that about myself, I don't have any pride when I am asked to lead. I'll do it out of duty if I have to, like at a job. And usually there's more money and status that goes along with it. I mean, there's obvious incentive why you would take a promotion at a job. But it's not something I seek out. And whenever it's happened, I've been asked to, to, to do it. I haven't applied. I haven't tried. Again, not, I'm not bragging because, you know, being a manager or being a supervisor at a job, too, it's very different from being a real organic leader. You know, I think to be a manager, to be a good manager at a workplace, you have to be responsible and objective. That's really it. You know, unless you're a CEO, unless you're in a position where you need to actually influence the direction of a business or a company, I don't think you need to have innate leadership qualities. I think you need to be responsible and objective and trustworthy. Doesn't really require a whole lot more. Maybe you need to like know how to mediate problems between people, that kind of thing. But growing up, like, you know, I, I recognize that, like, my best friend, people treat him like a leader. Like, I think about in high school where we spent so much time hanging out in parking lots. Like, there was a grocery store next to the skate park where all my friends skateboarded. 
And we would spend a lot of nights, like by the time we could drive, we would spend a lot of nights just like standing around in a circle in a parking lot. And I missed that. It was like a social club or something. And it was, it was at the time when like only a few people had cell phones. So it was a place that you could go and you knew you would run into people and you didn't always know who, but it was always going to be like people in your general group of friends. But then some, sometimes somebody would show up with somebody else and it was interesting. And, And we would stand around and we would like sit around in a circle, stand around in a circle in a parking lot, trying to decide what to do. Like, oh, maybe someone's parents are out of town. Oh, let's go to the let's go drive to the woods and smoke some weed. Oh, somebody's parents are out of town. Let's get some beer. But usually we didn't have any place to go. And so like our plans were like let's go to this other parking lot. Oh, oh, our other friend is at this parking lot. They're hanging out at the elementary school parking lot just shooting the shit. Let's go there. But every time somebody had an idea, they needed the approval of my best friend because he was kind of the de facto leader. Like somebody would come up with an idea and if he didn't want to do it, we wouldn't do it. They would look to him and he would have to give his approval. It wasn't that he was deliberately doing that. It's just, it was, it was organic. And I I was aware of that at the time and I was cool with it because I don't like to be the person. I don't like to be the DJ. I don't like to, to draft the itinerary. I don't like to come up with the plan unless it's my own individual plan of what I want to do by myself. I'm very passive when it comes to plans and things like that. I would rather have somebody else control the jukebox. As long as they're not playing something that I absolutely hate. But for, for the most part, I don't want to subject people to me, even though I do it here. In general, in life, I don't really want to subject people to me, if at all possible. But what's interesting is just that there were many different waves of friends who hung out in our group, and they all treated him that way. Like there was something natural there. And it plays into what this this guy from Utah was saying to me about how sociologists have learned that's what boys do. It's also what men do. They form kind of a crew or a pack, and there's usually a pecking order. And I think, too, like I had this friend in high school, a really good friend of mine, one of the best guys I've ever known. I lost touch with him many years ago. He has a wife and kid now. But really, one of the best guys. He and I spent a lot of time together my senior year of high school. And he really deferred to my best friend. They were inseparable for a while. And he actually, my best friend couldn't drive And so this guy would drive him everywhere. He would drive him to and from school to run errands, to go here and there. He was his driver. And the mafia guys have drivers. They have a guy who picks them up, does things for them. It's not a a belittling thing. It's like they're that guy's confidant and they they just naturally show them respect. And he would do things like he he would give my friend cigarettes, weed. He would do all kinds of things for him. But you didn't you didn't not respect him for that. Like the friend who was driving him around and doing all these things for him, you didn't look down on him. You just kind of understood that like he admired my best friend and was willing to do that. And I don't feel like my best friend really took advantage of this guy either. Like they were very close. We were all very close. You know I mean? And saying best friend is silly, but like I say that to just be like, 
this kid and I were very close friends going back to the time we were like seven or eight years old, maybe younger. Um, but this, this guy, he just, he did a lot for him, but there was this natural kind of hierarchy or pecking order. Boys kind of form crews. And at that point in my life, like I never thought about the mob or the mafia. That wasn't something I got interested in until later, but we were obsessed with the outsiders, both the book and the movie. And we watched it probably a hundred times, read the book multiple times. We saw ourselves as something like that. And that story is the same thing. You have these, these groups of boys. You have the greasers and the socias. They each have a leader. They have a pecking order. They're a crew. It's something we do. It's something we as men do. And we also, men form fraternal societies, fraternal clubs, secret societies, mafias, gangs. Women don't do that generally. They might have little clubs. They might have book club it's not that they don't have groups, but it's, it's very different. And it's natural. There's something built into us that does that. And it's something you can observe throughout history across the entire globe. And, uh, it's just, it's a core difference. It tells you that there, there's something in the wiring of men and women that does that. Like, you think about it, and, like, there's nothing stopping... Let's, let's talk about organized crime. Like, there's nothing stopping hordes of women, hordes of women, from buying a bunch of guns, assault rifles, handguns, all of the things that men love to take, like knives, any kind of weapon, clubs, it doesn't even have to be guns, but... There's nothing, let's just use guns because women being less physically strong than men could easily use firearms as an equalizer. They could easily form gangs. And while they might not be able to stand up to like a male gang, they could still impose their will on a lot of people, especially people who aren't in gangs. There's nothing stopping real girl gangs from forming the technology is available to do that but they don't do it yeah there are girl gangs there are like there are teenage girls who band together and fight and things like that it's far less common and there's something different in the wiring of women where they just don't do that and they're less interested in that like as outsiders, they're less interested in those subjects too. Like talking about men, like the people who are interested in the mafia are overwhelmingly men. And in my experience, I have known a few women who have been, in, been interested in it and they've been very mentally ill. They've, they've been almost like the kind of women who fall in love with serial killers in prison and marry them like Richard Ramirez and all that. In my experience, those are the sorts of women who are interested in the mafia. They're few and far between, and they seem to be mentally unhinged. Some of the men are too. You know, some of the men who are interested in the mafia are unhinged as well. But there's a, there's so many men, though. Of course, there are going to be a few who are crazy. But it just tells you something about it, about us. Where it's not just that we as men do that naturally from the time we're boys, as well as into manhood. We're also interested in that. Like even pro wrestling, like I think about pro wrestling as something that's very macho that I was into as a kid. Pro wrestling is constantly 
setting up these factions, like the NWO, the Four Horsemen, even silly ones, like in like late late stage WCW, where they had the West Texas Rednecks against this like Latino, was it the, the Latino World Order or something? It was a group of like Latino gangsters and they were at war with the rednecks, but it's like pro wrestling capitalizes on these like gangs or factions. Like sure. They have like guys who just are an individual wrestler who, who, who wrestles other individuals, but fans always like these factions in pro wrestling. The NWO was, was DX. These things were insanely popular. The Nation of Domination, like when the WWF had uh, the group of like black nationalists, like African nationalists, the Nation of Domination. And they would have those guys fight against these other guys. Like there's something about that that appeals to us as men. We like to see crews. And in each case, there was always a leader. In pro wrestling, when you had these factions going against other factions, there was always a very clear leader. And it was typically someone who, who was charismatic. And, uh, or ha- just had that, that it factor. But I was just reading something, you know, I, I, it, it's insane, but unavoidable right now, this, the gender stuff. I, it comes up on here a lot. It literally comes up everywhere all the time. I'll be talking to somebody who's not even interested in politics and they'll start talking about it. I'll be listening to a podcast that isn't even about, not even a podcast that's like rallying against the left or quote unquote wokeness or any of that. And they'll still kind of get into like, well, like the pronouns and the, and the genders and, uh, you know, uh, it's just unavoidable. It's, it's a bug. It's a, it's a brain worm that's just like working its way through all of our minds. And for me, like I'm not outraged by this stuff. Like I'm critical of it. I think they're wrong and I think it's destructive, but I'm not outraged by it, but I'm aware of it. And it goes back to something I, I say a lot on here, which is that like, it's very telling when simply describing something objectively comes across negative. And that's true for a lot of things. There are a lot of things out there where if you simply describe them objectively, somebody will think that you are attacking it. And that should speak volumes because it means there probably is something wrong with that thing. But uh, getting back on track, like what's interesting, I was just reading something earlier about, you know, I know I've mentioned this on here, but how the recent transgender craze well, rather, like the trans, trans, transgenderism, transgenderism, and I think it is an ism. I think it is an ideology in many, in most cases at this point. I think it is an ism. It is, it is an ism. But transgenderism used to be a male phenomenon. You had tomboys, but tomboys could be straight women. They could be lesbians. They could still be somewhat girly. Like, they didn't have to try to look like men. They just were generally more interested in what men are into. They might want to dress a little more like men. 
but nobody felt like they were trying to be men. You know, most people at least. I didn't think like, oh, she's she's trying to be a man. But you always had men who were trying to be women. And when you thought about like cross-dressing, like women never even came into your brain until 10 years ago. It was like, oh, the, the people who cross-dress, the people who want to be something other than what they were born as are typically men trying to look like women or become women. But I mentioned this recently how... A study showed that there's been a 4,000% increase in the number of girls identifying as boys. 4,000. And the left narrative is that that's because of more acceptance. Like, because of greater acceptance, more people are willing to identify how they truly feel inside. But a 4,000% increase, I, I can't even comprehend that number. And there's reason to believe that's social contagion. I mean, I would say myself, it is social contagion. And women are far more susceptible to social contagion than men are on a, on a wider level. Like men respond, I mean, this, this plays into what I was saying about men forming little crews or gangs, even just among a group of friends. You kind of form that, and there's a leader. And the leader within the group of men sets the tone like in my group of friends in high school are the de facto leader. He started getting into indie rock. He started wearing girl pants, really tight, like youth t-shirts, grew his hair out like shaggy. And then next thing you know, like our entire group of friends was dressing like that. Not me. But our entire group of friends all of a sudden were wearing women's pants because they were tight. They wanted the tightest pants available. They weren't gay. They weren't trying to look like women. It was just this indie rock fashion that I didn't relate to at all. But just like these friends heavily deferred to our leader, they followed his fashion. And you see that with men. Men will get into things that a particularly charismatic friend or leader among their group of friends is into so it's not that men are all rugged individuals who do what's true to them men are copycats too you know monkey see monkey do you know men men respond to what other men are doing but it's much more based on an immediate connection in a lot of cases that's that's my opinion that's my experience i should say that's my lived experience Women do that as well. Like girls in a group of friends respond to what another girl is doing, but they're also for, far more susceptible to like what's taking place on a societal level, on a wider level. And so we're seeing that play out with, with this gender bending where girls are responding heavily to that influence, a 4,000% increase in girls identifying as transgender You know, no amount of stigma removal is going to lead to 4,000%, especially something that obscure and unnatural. You know, I mean, maybe you could say it's natural that some people feel that way, but a 4,000% increase 
of people who feel that they were born in the wrong body, which is a spiritual idea. They say it's scientific, but that's a spiritual idea. The idea that there is something immeasurable inside of you that is communicating that you are in the wrong body, that's a soul thing. That's a spiritual thing. That's not scientific. Maybe you can apply science to it, but that idea that there is something inside of you telling you you are something else. But we've seen where, you know, this has come about at a time when these ideas are being pushed. When universities and increasingly mainstream entertainment are actually pushing these ideas. And it kind of started with feminism where the idea was like, you don't have to be the the sort of girl that society is forcing you to be, which I think is reasonable. But I want to get into that for a second because, you know, I talked about weight and things like that. What always gets me about that is the line of thinking around like weight and like women needing to be womanly or feminine or girly or skinny. There's this idea that that's men forcing women to be that way. And they talk about like fashion and uh, like, like modeling and things. And I think about like modeling, for example, I don't know a lot about it. I've never been interested in it, but like speaking for myself and a lot of my friends, We've never felt that women need to look a certain way. We might be attracted to somebody of one type or another. Like I've had a couple friends who were into like really skinny model type girls, but they've really been an exception and I don't relate to that. Like I had two friends in high school who were kind of artsy, kind of into, they they ended up getting into a famous band and they, they were obsessed with fashion they were obsessed with, with fashion models and they knew their names. Like I've never known the names aside from like Heidi Klum, Heidi Klum. I've never known the names of them, but they knew all the names of all of these models and they were really into these very skinny girls. I don't know that they felt all women should look that way, but they were into that. I just didn't relate to it. But you look at like, like an industry like that, like the fashion industry, the modeling industry, and is it really straight men who are pushing that image? Like, I always look at that stuff and I'm like, that seems to be fueled by women and gay men. It seems like, like a lot of the, the social pressure to be skinny or girly or womanly, someone can disagree, but like my, my perception is that it comes far more from other women. Like this, this psychic pressure that women feel, and women feel that heavily. They're constantly talking about it. If you notice, like, like women are constantly talking about this psychic judgment they feel. And in the age of social media, they often express that, that they feel psychically judged by nobody in particular, that everybody's looking at them, expecting them to be a certain way or do certain things. We're all subjected to that a little bit, but I've seen how common that view is. And I always think like how much of that is actually coming from men and how much of it is coming from other women. And for that matter, just this social consensus that has been formed. And then, you know, going back to this, uh, this 
increase in transgenderism among women, it seems to be the result of this new social consensus where like, and, and it kind of began in the, it, it kind of had roots in the idea that like, you don't need to be the woman that society is demanding you be. You know what, like, uh, what's that famous quote? It's like some president's wife. I don't even remember it, but people love it. It's uh, something to the effect of, like, well-behaved women never make history. You know, these ideas kind of have roots in that, where the idea was, like, as a woman, you don't need to conform to what you're expected to be. But that that's kind of mutated. In the, in the age of social media and the Internet, and the ideological takeover of entertainment and academia we've seen where like well-behaved women rarely make history has transformed into you're not even a woman maybe you're not even a woman and they've observed that this is happening in groups of girls so like there is there is kind of like a in the in the same way that i was talking about how like men will see like a more charismatic friend in their group of friends do something and then a number of men like start listening to the same music, start using the same slang, start wearing girl pants. That does happen in women where they, they've observed where like in groups of girls, like when one teenage girl becomes transgender, often multiple girls in her group, in her group of friends become transgender as well. Because they see the attention she's getting. They see that she has kind of set herself apart. She has given herself a unique identity. And they want to mirror that. And so that does happen like within an insular group of friends. But it's responding to something larger that's being pushed. It's responding to this new social consensus. And social contagion comes from that social con- uh, consensus. The idea that like, this is something you're supposed to do. And it's not just transgenderism. I mean, there have been there's there's plenty of other evidence of this. A good example I mentioned this probably last year, where it turned out that all of these teenage girls were developing Tourette's symptoms. All of these girls were, were having tics. All of these girls who were not diagnosed with Tourette's were suddenly exhibiting the symptoms of it. And it came out that all of these girls were watching these TikTok videos of this TikTok celebrity. It was a boy, I think, in Europe. And his whole thing was that he has Tourette's. I don't know if he actually does, but he would make these TikTok videos of his Tourette's. And all of these teenage girls were watching his videos over and over again. And they were developing the symptoms themselves. And I mean, we all do that a little bit. Like if somebody talks a certain way, like we all mirror each other. Like, I I know that I do this a little bit, where if I'm talking to somebody, like, for example, like, if I'm if I'm text messaging with somebody, and they don't capitalize things like they don't use proper punctuation, like they're, they're kind of casual with the way they type. I'm more likely to be a little more casual, not totally, I'm not going to type the way they type, but I'm more likely to kind of mirror them a little bit. Because like, there's something off putting like if somebody like I have a friend where like as long as I've known him and, and he's, he's a friend of mine in real life, 
but like the way he communicates through email and text message is all undercase, very little punctuation, very little formality. And while I don't type quite that loosely, like I will like be a little more informal with him. Whereas if it's a friend who uses periods and capital letters and punctuation and types more formally, I will do that too. And people, and it's a two-way street. Like I'm sure other people do that in response to what I'm doing, to what I'm doing. We mirror each other. Um, so we all do that a little bit. It's not that men don't do this, but women are far more responsive to it because they found that these teenage girls were watching these, vi- these this, this guy's videos. He went viral. He's famous on TikTok. And they were watching these videos of him with Tourette's, something that is a diagnosable, I don't know what, if you call it an illness. I don't know what you call Tourette's, a disorder for sure. It's, it's a disorder. A disorder. A shorter. And as a result, they were taking on those qualities, even though they themselves did not have Tourette's. There was an older study in a, a very small school that had 135 boys and 135 girls, or the study included those numbers, but it was in a, in a single school. And they found that this started happening with fainting, where suddenly girls were fainting all the time. Not all 135 girls, but a, a, like a number of girls... There was, there was kind of like this mini epidemic of fainting. And it's similar to the Tourette's thing. It's also similar to the transgender thing where like these girls were something that, that should be a physical condition. Like it sh- that should be a medical condition, not something that you just start doing because other people are doing it. But you can see where like, even though men like, yeah, my friends, multiple friends started wearing women's pants because like that was part of this indie rock fashion and they were mirroring each other. But men don't like to acknowledge that. Like men will mirror each other, but they really don't like you to point it out. And women, though, make it a point to point it out. Like when I was in high school, I knew girls who would call each other the night before and groups of girls would plan their outfits as a group. Like they would all decide to wear the color blue or, or like they like I remember this happening with pajama pants and white tank tops. This is before the yogi pants took off. I, I Man, I wish I was in high school and girls wore yogi pants. Fortunately, no, actually, you know what? I'm glad that that would have been nice. <laughs> that would have been nice to be in high school when girls wore yogi pants. But I was in high school during the days when girls wore low rise jeans with whale tail thongs sticking out, which to this day I love. I don't care how trashy or tacky that is. I absolutely love it. And you don't see it very often anymore. You do not see that. You'd go to the computer lab in high school almost guaranteed to see it. You go to the lunchroom, almost guaranteed. So we didn't have yogi pants, but we did have that. And I would actually take that. I'm actually glad that I had the whale tail era in high school. Um, But girls would coordinate their outfits. Like while men would mirror each other, they wouldn't coordinate. They wouldn't state it openly. Like they wouldn't call each other and be like, hey, are you going to wear your tightest pants tomorrow and a red shirt? 
they would dress similar, but it wasn't coordinated. Whereas girls, they would, they would be known to call each other. And like the, the pajama pants were really big before yogi pants. Girls got really into wearing pajama pants to school. An interesting statement. I guess it's like the idea is like, I'm going to be really comfortable, but it seemed to be making a statement. But groups of girls, they would all come to school. They would, they would call each other the night before. They would wear pajama pants and a white tank top. And so they all were wearing the same thing that day. I wouldn't call that a social contagion or anything. But you can see where it's like they, they don't just mirror each other. They coordinate it. And if one of them wasn't decided not to wear that, it would almost be a problem. Like women don't like that kind of dissonance. Like women are more agreeable by nature. And so not wearing the same outfit that your friends are trying to get everybody to wear the next day would be seen as kind of disagreeable. There would be dissonance there. Whereas with men, even though they mirror each other within a group of friends and they dress similar, they act similar, they are into similar things, it wouldn't cause a big issue. Like it was no issue that I didn't dress like my friends. It was zero issue. And they never mentioned it once. My friends never once, like we never once acknowledged the fact that I didn't dress like them. I was their friend and that was all that mattered. The only time it was ever pointed out, we were bowling and a girl was there and she looked at my pants and she goes, you're not wearing girl pants. And I said, no. And she was kind of confused because all of my friends were. Because like, like, I think in a woman's mind, it's like, well, your friends are wearing them. Like, why aren't you wearing them? It's like, isn't there some sort of consensus? Isn't this coordinated? But uh, we've seen where this social contagion impacts women far greater. Like they feel, they f it's not that men aren't susceptible to social contagion, but women feel something far more visceral. They feel far more dissonance. And, uh, you know, I kind of, you know, I remember watching the bisexuality trend. Not that there aren't bisexuals, what we call bisexuals. Not that there aren't real bisexuals. But they, uh, that, that sort of predated this. Where liberal women were becoming they were increasingly identifying as bisexuals. They were like the college, you know, lesbians who flirted with that kind of thing. But even post-college, like I knew a significant number of liberal adult women when I was more social here who all identified as bisexual. Interestingly, virtually none of them ever dated women. And I think many of them never even had a homosexual, homosexual interaction with another woman. M you know, maybe they kissed a girl, like maybe they had a threesome at some point. I I've known a couple people who have done that. But I, I, my joke was like, they're, they're bisexual on Tinder. And I knew female friends who I respect, but I, I observed this. This is again, one of those things that I'm being objective here, and it's going to sound negative, but it's something that I observed, 
And if the observation sounds negative, well, that's not on me. I'm simply observing the reality I witnessed, which is that a number of these women would identify as bisexual on Tinder. And when they were single, they would flirt with other women on Tinder, but they would never actually date them or meet up with them. Very rarely. They were always seeking a man. Not to say that, like, you can't be bisexual and prefer to be involved with a man while also being attracted to a woman. I'm not trying to put anybody in a box. I'm not trying to put anybody, uh, you know, in anything. But it was something I observed, and it did make me question. Like, I didn't feel, like, intuitively, I didn't feel like these women were actually bisexual. I felt like they were responding to some sort of psychic pressure or need for consensus. And it was, again, among women who were in a group of friends. And not just in a group of friends, but in a group of friends that was increasingly being influenced by certain ideological influences. But we can see where being a bisexual became passe, like it became nothing. Like people couldn't give a shit if a girl is bisexual. Like people didn't look at it the same way they look at a bisexual man, which is like that's you know that's foul. Like like a woman isn't typically attracted to a man who's let another man stick his dicky in him. Hate to be crass, but I mean I think that's part of it. It's like there's something repellent about that if you're a straight woman or a woman who's attracted to a man. Women don't typically like men who are also into other men. While there's this, the kind of bro, like, oh, dude, like, I love, dude, I only watch lesbian porn. Lesbian porn sucks. Lesbian, lesbian porn sucks. It's always sucked. But, you know... Aside from that, that sort of like insecure, like I only watch lesbian porn. Oh, dude, my gr- my girlfriend's into girls. I've dated bisexual girls. I'm not going to say they were lying. But it, the same thing I'm talking about here. They, they weren't actually interested in women. At most, it was like you could occasionally, they would occasionally be like, oh, she's really hot. And maybe they had some sort of fleeting experience with another woman, but it really wasn't part of them. Um, but, uh, men are okay with it is my point. Like while there are those sort of insecure dudes who are like, I only watch lesbian porn or like, or, or like, dude, isn't it fucking awesome that my girlfriend likes girls, dude, dude, isn't fucking awesome my girlfriend likes girls. Like while there are guys like that, the vast majority of men, they don't really care one way or another. Like I didn't care. I didn't care that I had a girlfriend who was a bisexual. It made no difference to me. We're monogamous. I don't want to have threesomes. Never have, never will. It just did, it made no difference to me. It, and, and I think part of that is because I saw, I saw so many girls identifying that way. But it became just old hat. Like nobody really cared. It wasn't brave to come out as a bisexual. People were like, oh, cool. You're a girl who likes other girls sometimes. Okay. And part of this is a need to like assert your identity. You know, we're all doing this. We're all trying to not just find unique jewels to hold out. We're trying to become unique jewels. 
We're trying to assert our individuality. We're trying to define ourselves. We all are doing it all the time. And you can see where something radical comes out of these other, when these other things become passe, you can see where, I mean, it's like, it's like any kind of addiction or anything where you need a harder and harder drug or you need to consume more and more of that drug the more you use it. And progressivism is very much that. Where you take ideas that make sense. Like when I think about liberalism, I've always respected leftists and liberals who believe what they believe because it makes the most sense, morally, ethically. And I don't even disagree with many of those ideas at all, really. Like, there's a guy who, he was listening to my show a lot, a friend of mine. I think he's about 50. Known him for a very long time. And, it, you know, he, he's, he's very far left. And I think some of the things I say on here kind of bothered him. And we disagreed respectfully. He told me, last time I talked to him, he said he had stopped listening. Maybe, maybe I went too far for him or something. But we had some discussions about it, about our views. And I think he and I, we, like, this is a guy, like, we have some different views and different philosophies, but I know that I could coexist. This guy could be my neighbor. I consider him a friend. And there's no real dissonance. I don't feel any dissonance because we don't agree about everything. And while there are like, sometimes we, we've had discussions over the years where it feels like it's a little bit sensitive, like I got to be very tactful about how I put this and vice versa. But one thing I like about this guy, even though his views are much further left than mine, one thing I've always liked about this guy is that I know he came to his values because like those specific values and ideas are well-reasoned and make sense to him. And he's not going to change those unless something that's more well-reasoned comes to him. He's not responding to any kind of social pressure. And as long as I've known him, he's been consistent. He hasn't become more radical. He's been very consistent because he came to those values because those ethics make sense to him. What we see with progressivism today is it is like addiction where you need something harder. You need a harder drug. You know... You need to lace your weed with uh, PCP to get an, an, an effect from it. Because it's not about ethics and values. It's about something else. On a political level, it's about power. But uh, on an individual level, it's about identity and asserting yourself and it's this sort of pseudo individuality where you define yourself as an individual by doing what you're told to do and what all of your friends are doing and thinking but being in complete denial about that and we can see where progressivism went from or just liberalism went from like these are our values and we want to realize those values in our society. It went from that to, okay, we've realized many of these values. How can we, how, how can we mutate them further? 
so that we're always chasing that dragon. That's, that's what it's like. That's what progressivism is like to me. It's chasing the dragon. You get high, but next time you need to get higher. And uh, being a bisexual isn't enough. Now you got to just be a man. You got to get your boobs removed. Your boobs removed. You got to get your, your double deities taken off. You got to get rid of those double deities now. Chasing the dragon. But this social contagion, it's very real. And it's not always this crazy. I think this has definitely been... This is escalated in large part because of like phones, computers, social media, information overload. That's had a huge influence. In addition to what's going on in entertainment and academia, it's also the, the medium that has been used. And, uh, you know, where does it go from there? It, it just it's it's it seems like the end result is just non-existence at some point like the only way for things to quote unquote progress further is simply for things to just not even exist at all anymore but i think about like you know it's it's not always uh it doesn't always have to be because i mean what we're seeing now is in my opinion and i try to be objective about it but even in my attempts at objectivity i still can't shake this perception that this is pathological what we're seeing is is completely off the rails pathological but you know that need for social consensus doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be pathological and you can see this behavior in smaller ways like, I have this memory. It's, it's actually my one of my first memories. It might even be my first memory where I was a baby. I don't think I could even walk yet. If I, if I could walk, I barely. I was a baby baby. But this memory stood out to me so much, I never forgot it. My mom, sister, and I were driving back from somewhere. And we drove by this park in my hometown. It used to be a golf course, and they, they turned it into a wetlands, but they left these hills of grass. They left the grass from the old golf course, so they were just these big, empty fields that lead into a wetlands with some docks. Juanita Bay Park, it's called. Loved going to that place as a kid. I, used to, I was a legitimate bird watcher. I would have my mom take me there with my binoculars, and I would keep track of what was going on with the pied-billed grebes, the cormorants, the great blue herons. I never saw, there was one very obscure bird that allegedly lived there that I never saw. It ends in like Vern. I was going to say Wyvern, but that's a dragon. I don't know, I haven't thought about it in a long time, but it, it was like kind of like a tall, thin bird that blended in with the reeds can't remember what it was called but i don't think i ever saw one and i always wanted to um but i was a baby we were driving by Winita bay park and a hot air balloon shaped like donald duck's head was landing in the field and i always questioned my entire life i questioned whether i hallucinated this but deep down i knew that it happened 
And it wasn't just Donald Duck. It was like the original Donald Duck. Because if you know the difference between like old Donald Duck and new Donald Duck, kind of like how Mickey Mouse changed over the years, how like the early Mickey Mouse looked different than the Mickey Mouse we know. The early Donald Duck, like his, his, uh, the blue was like almost black and like the style of hat was slightly different. Like he looked a little bit different. I think his bill might've been more orange than yellow or something, but it, it, it was like this hot air balloon looked like the original Donald Duck, the old school Donald Duck. And it was landing in this field and there were all these kids there. I don't know if, I don't know if this hot air balloon could have fit this many kids, or if it just happened to land in a place where like some sort of kids camp was going on. But we saw it landing and it was so surreal that my mom pulled off into the parking lot so that we could go check it out. And I was very leery. I did not trust it. But my sister, like the kids from the camp or whatever it was, they were doing these activities around the Donald Duck hot air balloon. Like they were doing things like they were all sitting in a circle around it. Like there's that thing that kids do where they, they sit in a circle and they put their legs together. Like they, 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 they sit in a circle like right next to each other and stretch their legs out. And they were like doing these little games and stuff in a circle. And my sister, even though, you know, this was some sort of camp or like group of kids who were there for some other reason, my sister joined them. And my mom was holding me cause I was a baby. And I remember like we were a little ways away And I remember watching it and thinking, this is weird. And it seemed so foreign to me that my sister wanted to go do what those other kids were doing. Like she like wanted to join in. She wanted to do what they're doing. And my sister's an individual. You know, we don't have a hundred percent the same beliefs, but like her values came to her similar to my friend. Like my sister has always been very liberal. She's an environmentalist. She's always been involved in you know, animal rehabilitation. Uh, when she was in high school, she started like volunteering and making all these connections, doing this advocacy work for the local Native American tribes. So she's always been of that mind, and she hasn't changed in that regard. Like her values are the same, and I know that like some of this progressivism that's off the rails like doesn't appeal to her because her values are based on ethics. And things that she came to a realization about and has maintained for the most part. Not that people don't change, but, you know, that's her. But I do know, like, growing up with an older sister, I do know that a part of her, like, feels more attracted to, like, what other people are doing. Like, what other people, you know, to that consensus. And... Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just like, maybe this is fan fiction, but I remember I was a baby and I remember like being like, what is my sister doing? Why is she joining them? Why is she doing these little activities with these kids around this Donald Duck hot air balloon? And I I distinctly remember having this feeling. I was probably two years old and I had this feeling and someone would say I'm lying, but no, this is my first memory that I, this is the first time I remember being aware And I I remember thinking, like, I don't trust this. I don't trust what those kids are doing. And it wasn't a negative thing. It was just sort of like, I was just kind of like, I remember, like, my mom was holding me and I was apprehensive because the Donald Duck hot air balloon seemed scary. The fact that it just landed, the fact that it was like the Donald Duck from like the 1920s. 
it just, it kind of freaked me out in a weird way. It was cool, but I remember it kind of freaking me out and I couldn't understand like why my sister wanted to go do that. And it wasn't just because I was a baby and I couldn't like my entire life. That's been my story. Often to my detriment is that I would never go join the activity that the kids are doing. Like I said, I'm lucky I had friends somehow. But I, I've always known that, that that was something that made me and my sister different. Like somebody would say, that's just your personalities or whatever. But I've noticed this with female friends. I've noticed this with girlfriends. That women have a greater desire to be agreeable. I mean, I was talking earlier about the, this art philosophy class and like we'd have these discussions in the classroom and it was always the men who were disagreeable always it was always a man in my classes who would disagree with my attempt to get participation points i don't i actually never remember one time when a a woman disagreed with me and women are aware of that but they think it's conditioned They think that the patriarchy has forced them to be that way. There are plenty of disagreeable women, but I think there is something in the social environment that women have a desire to find consensus. And that's, and that's a good thing too. This isn't just a bad thing. Like it's great at parties. Like I've been at parties before where it's a woman who like comes up to me and is like, Oh, have you met John? you guys, you guys are both into this. Like, Hey, you know, like women are much better at bringing people together in that way. I mean, it's men who go to war. Men are far more competitive, overtly and aggressively competitive. They're more standoffish a lot of the time. And women are very great at breaking that ice. They're, they're great at establishing consensus. I mean, I was at a barbecue in LA a friend of ours invited us to a family barbecue he was having when I was down there, a Guatemalan family actually. And we didn't know the family. It was like, it was like, it was, it was very small. It was just like this guy's family. And then like a group of my friends. And we were just kind of like, there was an empty pool and we were really stoned. And we were just like sitting on the edge of this empty pool, like doing our own thing, eating a hamburger And then like we went over and like sat at these tables and like nobody was talking. Like we weren't even talking to each other. And our host, like his cousin's wife was there and she started like chatting with us and she like, she got the conversation going. Like I found out that one of my best friends was getting married. Like he had been with his girlfriend for 20 years or something longer than I've known him, 15 or 20 years. They'd always been together. They were in their, I think, late 30s at the time. And she was like, so what's going on in your lives? Like, what are you into? Like, oh, oh, yeah, this. Like, oh, yeah, that. You know, she she bridged all these gaps, even between us, like even between guys like us who were already really good friends. And she's like, oh, you know, are, are you guys married? Like, and my friend's like, oh, I just got engaged. Like, we're going to get married. He didn't even tell us that. All of us are really close friends. One of my best friends didn't even tell us that he was getting married because it was actually unimportant because he was already uh, basically common law married. It was just a formality, but it took this woman bringing that up. Like it took, it took this woman that we didn't even know to be like, Oh, Hey, like this, this." you know, she, she bridged a gap. Like she kind of, she was kind of establishing like a, a, a consensus among us that like, Oh, we can talk about this and relate over this. And it was very human. 
I mean, the the plus side of this tendency of being agreeable, of bringing people together, is that it bridges gaps. But it's like it has a malignant side. Like everything, everything has a malignant side. It's like the same tendency that makes someone a hero is the same tendency that can make them a villain. Both are individuals. Both are asserting themselves. Um, they're two sides of the same coin. That's what I was talking about earlier. Where like the opposite reinforces its opposite. It defines its opposite. And uh, the, there's always two sides of the same coin. And that need for social consensus. Social consensus is amazing. Like we, Society would fall apart without it. But it goes haywire. It can become pathological. And you can end up with a 4,000% increase in teenage girls identifying as transgender and taking drugs and getting surgeries and being extremely narcissistic, vengeful, um, delusional, angry. Basically inventing a problem that didn't exist and then getting mad at people about it. And, you know, because you think about this, this is what they've observed in these groups of teenage girls. I know this is all over the place, but like in these groups of teenage girls, when like multiple girls in a group of friends start identifying as transgender, the ones who don't start to feel left out, they start to feel dissonance. It starts to feel like a problem. And that leads to how can I resolve this dissonance? Well, by doing what they're doing. And I, you know, I've noticed this, you know, through dating women. That when I say or do something disagreeable, even if it's not disagreeable to my significant other, I can sense that it hurts them. Not personally, but they do internalize it as if it is personal. And that's been a big problem for me. Because the truth is, like, I'm a fairly disagreeable person. I do my best to keep it in check. But if I don't keep it in check, I'm very disagreeable. Bordering on oppositionally defiant. And I've noticed that when I've dated girls who pick up on that and feel that, like, not that I'm disagree disagreeing with them, but that I'm disagreeing with, like, the larger environment that we're in I can just sense that it's an issue for them and some women like that you know some women actually like that and what's interesting quote-unquote crazy girls give less of a shit about that and I wouldn't say I've dated many crazy girls I mean I haven't dated that many girls period but I've been friends with girls who I think people might call crazy. Like I've been platonic friends with girls who might be called the crazy girl. And I find they don't care as much about that. And like I'm thinking about um, some women I've known. I'm going to try to avoid specifics here. But like 
women who might be classified as pretty out there and and crazy, while there are a lot of problems with that, I've noticed that they don't tend to evaluate men as much on those terms. Like it's not as important to them that the men they're involved with are agreeable with the larger environment they're a part of, with the, with the part of the social environment. Again, this is my own anecdotal experience. But they don't evaluate a man like based on how he fits in with a group. And that can, of course, be a problem. Like, like a crazy girl can be a big problem. <laughs> you know, as, as, as anybody knows, that everybody knows... But one thing that I like about crazy women, quote unquote crazy women, whatever that means to you, I think we all have our own understanding of what that is. But one thing that I like about them as friends is they don't seem to care about that. They, re- they really don't. They, don't. they don't seem to care about that. They don't evaluate men based on that. They don't tend to form their relationships around that. Um, which might be kind of what sets them apart. Like what makes them outliers, you know, what makes them quote unquote crazy is that like they, they aren't part of the same, they don't share, they're, they're not really in that same collective headspace. They don't respond to, they might be responding to a different type of psychic pressure but they're they're not responding to the same psychic pressure that more agreeable women are responding to. And for me, like, if I'm part of a situation where people are doing something that I fundamentally disagree with, I won't even raise an objection. I will simply leave. I will not do what they're doing, but I won't take a stand either. I will simply not participate. To me, non-participation, you know, I understand politically that can be rough, you know, because there, there's a philosophy that, there, there's a saying people people have, conservatives say this a lot, which is that like, the people who just want to be left alone will always be at the mercy of the people who want power. And that's kind of what we're seeing right now with progressive politics, where progressives want power. And the people who simply want to be left alone are at the mercy of the people who want power. But in order to not be at their mercy, you have to want power too. So it's, it's a, that's a huge dilemma for me because I don't want power. Just like I was saying, I'm not a leader. I don't want to be a leader. I'm not a natural leader at all. But, but I also know that simply wanting to be left alone makes, it puts you at the mercy of a larger group. So it's a dilemma there. In, in politics, that's a dilemma. But when it comes to your, your own personal choices in your life, I think non-participation is the best thing you can do. Because you don't want to define that thing. Like I was saying, opposites define their opposite. Without an opposite, 
the opposite of that thing has no definition. Let's go with the coin again. Let's go with the good old coin analogy. A coin analogy. Let's go with the coin analogy. Stupid. Really stupid right there. But uh, the coin analogy, it's like, well, what makes heads heads aside from the fact that it has a heads on it? Well, the fact that there's another side that's tails. A one-sided coin doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a one-sided coin. That could be a, a Buddhist, that could be a Zen koan. Instead of what's the sound of one hand clapping, it's imagine a one-sided coin. But no, what makes heads heads is the fact that there's a tails on the other side. The other side of something defines the side it's opposite to. And they reinforce each other. But by not participating, you don't reinforce that thing that you're opposed to. What this always makes me think of is, you know, I mentioned this before, it's, it's an uninteresting story, but we had this guest speaker in college. It was a woman, I don't know if she was an author or who she was, but I really didn't like her. She told us this story, I don't even understand the point of it. She was this like middle-aged woman with glasses, and she read this like short story she had written to our class. I don't know if she was famous. I don't know who, I don't know who, she, if she was a friend of the professor, but she was some sort of author or poet or something. And it was this story about how like she had to have like the Comcast cable guy come to like help install or fix her internet. And he was a Mexican guy. And like the whole story was about how like she was trying to decide whether or not to have sex with him and seduce him. And there, and it was, this is like 2006, 2007, uh, but it's at a liberal arts college. But, you know, you could tell that like part of it was that like she was signaling that she was like thinking about sleeping with this Mexican Comcast guy who spoke broken English, like some sort of porn scenario. I don't, I don't know what the fuck, but, uh, like the whole story was like, it was like this dilemma and like, where like she and him like laid down on the bed on their backs. And she was, she was like describing how like she could hear the condom wrapper, like rustling in his pocket, which is like a total hallucination. I have a hard time believing that this like Mexican Comcast guy who's just doing his job. Like it just has a condom at the ready because like some like virtue signaling liberal white woman is going to sleep with him on the job. Like he didn't like take the condom out and show her. She's like, we were laying on the bed. Like she tried to seduce him. She's like, I could, he moved his arm and I could hear the condom rustling. And like, she didn't sleep with him. Like nothing happened and he left. And like, I'm, I'm paying for this. I'm in college. What, what value does this story have? It, it pissed me off. Cause, and I didn't like the woman's attitude either. Very self-important. But anyway, like the, her actual story is unimportant. I just, I just was not having it. And just to show you, you know, the point of my story, though, is like at, at one point, though, she's like, let's take a break. 
And she goes, let's all stand up and wiggle. Just stand up and we're, we're going to like get the blood moving. I, I hate when people do that. If I want to get the blood moving, I'll, 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 I know how to get the blood moving. I know how to get the blood moving in my body. I know how to get the blood moving in my body. I know how to get the blood moving in my own body. If I want to take a walk, but she's like, everyone just stand up. And like, anytime somebody tells you, like anytime somebody's addressing a crowd and they tell you to like stand up and stretch or stand up and like shake, I don't trust them. That's what she she told us to do. She's like, I want you to stand up and just like shake, just wiggle. I want y'all just to stand up and wiggle, get the blood moving. We've been sitting for an hour. Who taught you that? What, what public speaking course taught you to do that to the audience? And it's, it's not like we were there for eight hours either, you know? It's like this woman was probably talking for like an hour at most. But she told us to do that in this, this kind of lecture hall. And sure enough, though, everybody stood up and they started shaking and wiggling. And then the lady said, and she goes, and don't be that person who embarrasses yourself by not shaking. See, she's smart. Like she knew to, she knew to cover all her bases. She was like, don't be that person who embarrasses yourself by not standing. So she's like telling everybody to do something that's essentially embarrassing, which is stand up and shake and wiggle. And then she's uh, inverting it. She's inverting the scenario, what we call doing a little inverting the scenario by telling everybody that, oh, the people who are going to stay sitting, the people who, who don't want to stand up and wiggle, they're actually going to embarrass themselves by not doing what we're doing. There's, a, there's leftism in a nutshell. There's progressivism in a nutshell. But uh, she, uh, when I heard that, I was like, oh, I almost respected it. I almost respected it because I was like, oh, she's covering all her bases. Like in her attempt to get everybody, commanding everybody to get up and wiggle, she's inverting it by like telling people that by not wiggling, you're going to embarrass yourself. So as everybody stood up and started to wiggle, I just got up and I left. I was like, you know, it's college. Your professor isn't going to care if you come and go. And I was like, I'm just going to leave. I didn't feel proud. I didn't feel like, I didn't pat myself on the back. I was just like, Oh yeah, like because if I stayed there and I was defiant and I didn't wiggle, if I protested, I would be reinforcing that by doing the opposite of what she was telling us to do. Not that she even would have noticed or cared, but this is what was going on in my head. By doing the opposite of what she's asking us to do and like protesting and making a point of it, I'm going to reinforce her. I'm going to define her. I'm going to give her more definition. The only way that I can feel okay about this situation is if I just leave. I had a really, <laughs> it's funny, like, like who knows who she was? It, 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 I remember being really disturbed. But you know what? That would have an impact on uh, agreeable people. Like even if somebody thinks standing up and wiggling is stupid or they don't want to do it an agreeable person would think if i don't do it she's right i will embarrass myself and so i'm sure a lot of people in that room 
I'm sure a lot of people in that room did it just because they, they, they suddenly were like, oh, I will embarrass myself. I will seem disagreeable. I will call attention to myself as a disagreeable person. The social consensus is now stand up and wiggle. Who knew that that would be a parable in my life? Who knew that that memory, it's like a, the parables in my life are like Donald Duck, uh, hot air balloon, which I have to say, the last time that my mom, sister, and I were all together in one room before my mom died, about a week before she died, at that point, we didn't know she was going to die. We were just visiting my sister because she was recovering from a surgery. I brought that story up. It's, it's weird that I brought that up because I always remembered it. I never forgot the Donald Duck hot air balloon, but I never once brought it up. I had this very vivid memory of it that almost seemed like a dream or a hallucination, but I never once brought it up to my mom or sister after it happened. We never once talked about it. it I was a baby. It was in my head, but I never brought it up. I never asked them if they remembered it. I never had any confirmation that it happened, but this last time that we were all together, it's almost like a premonition or something where... I said to them, I was like, hey, do you guys remember when I was a baby, we were driving by Winita Bay Park and a Donald Duck hot air balloon landed and we pulled over and got out and like, and, and they were like, yeah, they, they both remembered it. So I got confirmation that it happened. So it's like the parables of my life or like one time when I was a baby, I saw a Donald Duck hot air balloon in a field. And my sister joined in with these activities kids were doing around the hot air balloon, like some pagan ritual. That's what it looked like to me. Of course, I didn't know what a pagan ritual was when I was two years old. Or did I? I think I did. But that's like in retrospect, that's kind of what it looked like. It was very pagan, like this giant anthropomorphic animal head filled with hot air and a bunch of little kids like playing and doing weird games around it sitting around in circles like like what i remember was like when they were sitting around in a circle what they were doing is they were like they were separating their legs out into a v and making their feet touch each other and then bringing their legs back inward and then putting them back out again like they were opening and closing their legs while sitting in a circle so it was creating almost like this weird pattern or movement and uh, something about it, though, like as a baby, even I was just like, I don't. I mean, it's just kids playing around a Donald Duck hot air balloon. But something in my brain was like, I don't trust this. That's a parable in my personal Bible. Another one is this random guest author who spoke to my college class about like wanting to sleep with the Mexican Comcast guy and like imagining that she heard a condom rustling in his pocket and like laying on a bed talking to him and then not sleeping with him or something like what even is what what even are you getting at lady then telling us to stand up and wiggle and me leaving most uninteresting story in the world but hey it's my these are my parables here But yeah, I'm, I'm going to close this out. I, I just think this plays a role in, in everything that's going on now. And I think the social contagion, social contagion is social consensus gone haywire. 
We need social consensus. Social consensus can be virtuous. And women play a big role in that. Uh, You know, women have the capacity to unite people in that way. But it can also become very pathological. It can become a contagion. Women can develop Tourette's because that wasn't happening with boys. Teenage boys weren't watching these Tourette's videos and developing Tourette's symptoms in large numbers. Boys haven't seen a 4,000% increase in transgenderism since these ideas have been actively and constantly promoted on a mainstream level. Um, Just kind of interesting. And I think it was observable two years ago too, where the people who seemed to be the most suddenly and deeply unhinged in summer 2020, and for that matter, all of 2020, I mean, you can see where the social consensus surrounding coronavirus quickly became a social contagion. I mean, you think about how much people cared about the VAC. I haven't heard a single person say anything about the VAC since February, since the Ukraine war started. I haven't come across like a single, I'm sure there are still people debating it somewhere, but I I haven't come across a single person who really cares who's VAC'd or who's not. But you would have thought it was the biggest thing in the world six months ago. The state of coronavirus hasn't changed that substantially. I don't even know what's going on anymore. I've noticed that when I go to the store right now, there's a lot more masks again. I don't know how much of that's because of monkeypox, which to my knowledge is, is spreading almost exclusively among gay men. Um, but uh, I don't know how much of these masks that people are wearing right now, because the whole idea was that coronavirus, here we are on coronavirus again. Uh, the whole idea was that like coronavirus doesn't, uh, doesn't spread as much in, in the hot weather in the summer. So why am I going to the store now? And there's a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of people, a lot of people wearing masks again. Is it monkeypox? Is it coronavirus? I thought the summer was when people don't need to worry as much, but nobody seems to care about the vac now. And the level of passion people had about that. Because it was mid-February when the massive attacks on Joe Rogan were happening. When people were trying to ruin Joe Rogan for being a fairly neutral, objective, you know, uh, commenter, commentator on the VAC and coronavirus and all that. Like they were, they were trying to ruin him over it, trying to get him taken down. And then just the Ukraine war started and that provoked a whole new social contagion over like what you should feel about that, what you should believe about that. And that's been the last number of years. You know, this stuff has been going on for a while. Like I've been, I've been watching these social contagions develop for the last decade for sure especially where I live. 
but you can see where like that stuff led to the popularity of Trumpsfeld. You know, this stuff didn't come like that's that's a weird thing because you know people's brains reset. I'm going to be here for five hours. Uh, you know, people's brains reset in 2016, and they didn't realize that Trumpsfeld and his popularity was in response to what was already taking place. It was in response to the direction, the pathological direction that progressivism was already taking. And you could make an argument that Trumpsfeld represented like an opposite side of, like an opposite pathology. You could make that argument. But it was in response it, and, it, and those two things define each other, kind of what I've been talking about through this episode. Uh, but Trump's cell was in response to what was already taking place. But people whose brains reset at the end of 2016, they've come to believe that this pathological progressivism, which to them isn't pathological— is part of this resistance to Trumpsfeld. Well, no, Trumpsfeld was actually the resistance to that, and that's a fact. I know, I know, it's opinion, but to, but as far as I'm concerned, that's a fact because I was observing this very closely. I was very interested in what was taking place. And as I've said before, nobody took Trumpsfeld seriously. Republicans conservatives, people who were opposed to pathological progressivism. When Trumpsfeld announced his candidacy, they weren't, they weren't like, that's my guy. What legitimized Trumpsfeld was the response to him. If the left had responded to Trumpsfeld's candidacy by saying, we're going to ignore him, he never would have been president. Because when he announced that he was running, I remember thinking like, oh, it's, it's just like every single celebrity who says they're running for president and it's a publicity stunt. He had no support from the GOP. That wasn't a, what you would consider like a mainstream political view to support a guy like that for president of the United States. When I realized that he actually had a, a significant chance was when I saw how people responded to him. The opposite defined him. When people became unhinged about Trumpsfeld, they defined him. And he in turn defined them. But to me, they were already kind of defined. And when people saw that Trumpsfeld was a very distinct opposite to pathological progressivism, that's when they said, he's my guy. But it was the response to him that created his popularity. Going back to that, that idea of non-participation. If the left had said, oh, this guy Trump, this guy Trump, this guy Trump, we're just going to be non-participants. We're not even going to look at him because he feeds off attention. You know, he feeds off of negativity. He eats negativity for breakfast. In, if any other human being in the world was talked about constantly the way he does, and it's not like he ignores it. He consumes it. 
He was on Twitter every day. He watches the news every day. I mean, think about Trumpsfeld for a second. Here is an old man who's in bad shape, who eats McDonald's constantly, apparently. They say that he has the news on all day, that he's watching the news all day, like even news he hates. Like he pays attention to CNN, who he hates. And so this guy doesn't live a healthy lifestyle. And it's not like there's all this negativity like being directed toward him and he's ignoring it. He's consuming it. He's eating it. He's feeding off of it. And so when people had this severe and negative response to him, they legitimized him and they fed him. But the fact that he was even in the conversation at all was because of what was already taking place on the left. And I don't think there's much that could convince me otherwise, because I, I watched it take place. You know, we saw what was already happening with BLM. We saw what was already happening with gender. All of these things were already, these were already moving. People were already in this whole, like that was when people still used the phrase social justice warrior. That was before Trumpsfeld. That was leading up to him. People were seeing these quote-unquote social justice warriors, you know, speaking of social contagion, people were watching that become bigger and bigger, that way of thinking, that mutation. He didn't create that. That was there before him. But it legitimized him. And that's how he became the president. But we can't even get there. We're so far gone that we can't even talk about that. We can't even observe that. The contagion is so severe. It's so flexible. It could be anything. Anything can be inverted in a second now. Because none of this is based on ethics, values, morals. None of this is based around concrete ideas that people have reached and thought, hey, that's what I believe and that's what I'm going to stick to. Instead, it's this disturbing, amorphous mutation. And how could you ever trust that? But anyway, uh, started this out with a Bible verse. I'm not going to end with one, but I do want to draw back to that, which is the bigger picture. This is God's world, baby. And uh, if you believe in God or anything like that, it doesn't have to be G-O-D God. If you have a belief in any kind of governing force, if you even just believe in the universe, it's funny how we just readily accept that idea. There's a universe. People are like, there's no God. I'm an atheist. There's no God. The universe, though, I, I totally accept that idea. Something you can't even comprehend, which is, is what both of these things are. 
the universe is just incomp is just as incomprehensible as God. But no matter what you believe, whether you believe that this is all just some, whether you simply believe in nature, whatever it is you believe, something created this. Even if you believe that we created ourselves, it doesn't matter what you think. The idea is that all of this stuff, these opposites, these dynamics I'm talking about, no matter how different they are from each other, no matter how competitive they are with each other, no matter how much they hate and seek war with each other, they came from the same potter. They came from the same force. They both came into existence. And they came from the same clay, like that Bible verse says. So I can't hate it. I can't be opposed to it. Even though I see pathology everywhere now. I'm not outraged by it. As I said earlier, I'm critical but I consider my view, and I am biased, but I consider my view to be objectively critical. I'm trying to describe what I see. I'm trying to make sense of that. That's it. I'm trying to describe what I observe. And even though I'm critical... I can't say that I'm outraged. I can't say that I'm upset about it. Because all of this comes from the same clay. Just like you can't have mercy without destruction to define mercy. Just like you can't have positivity without negativity to define that positivity. These different social forces that are at play these different warring factions, they all share the same genesis. They're all made of the same material. And they all seem to need each other. Because without them, without the opposite, it's all nothing. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.